Christian counselor Keith McCurdy is back on this episode of Basecamp Live. He had joined me on the stage at this summer's Society for Classical Learning's National Conference, where we covered a range of topics relevant to our schools and homes. We decided to turn this interview into a podcast where we discuss topics like the mental health crisis in our country today. Keith shares his wisdom on how to interpret what we're hearing in terms of the statistics and the reports that so often fill our news feeds. He puts it in perspective along with some sage advice. We also discussed ways we as parents and educators can be sure we're taking care of ourselves to be healthy and connected in meaningful community and relationships as an antidote to the rising rates of isolation from the ever-present world of screens and technology all around us. Keith also provides guidance on how we can be agents of restoration and healing in our homes and schools where the culture continues to polarize and divide people. And there is good news. We covered a lot of ground. You don't want to miss this episode of Basecamp Live. Mountains, we all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it Ancient Future Education for Raising the Next Generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Keith is certainly no stranger to the SCL and our organization. Keith is uh, very much... uh, in demand these days. I, if you don't know Keith, you've not had a privilege of bringing Keith maybe out to your school. He's the president and founder of Live Sturdy. He's the president of Total Life Counseling. 30 years now, is that about right? Basically, yeah, about, about ment- 33 years. 33 years yeah. uh, in, in counseling and mental health. But here's what's unique is that Keith's also, again, he's one of us. You, you've been a board member of the Classical Christian School there in Roanoke. Yeah. Uh, you have a heart for, for this movement and for what we're dealing with. And I think, again, we're going to talk in a minute about kind of this three-legged stool of you got the school and the parents and, and the church. And if we're not attending to, if parents are showing up and they're not fully engaged, we're going to have a hard time delivering right, this amazing education. Right. Keith speaks nationally. You've got, a, mm-hmm. in fact, you're on the road a ton these days. Um, we we have a, a wonderful uh, opportunity. If you, anybody listen to the Basecamp Live podcast, been doing that for about four years. Anybody listen to that podcast? I know some of you do. Thank you. I encourage you to listen to it. It's basically an, an effort that we started four years ago yeah. to try and help uh, engage parents and educators. on if you're climbing up to what feels like the top of Mount Everest along the way, we need to encourage you. So, Keith, you do McCurdy moments often, and you're on the show often. And so a lot of and people I apolog- love you. I apologize for the McCurdy moments McCurdy right now. McCurdy moments are great. It's three minutes with Keith <laughs> to just get, again, a, a quick encouragement. So this engage tool is going to be another way just to get resources yeah. to people. So, Keith, I thought, again, just this is just kind of a conversation. I, one of the things, obviously, we're talking about beauty. We've just heard an amazing presentation on the impact of beauty on the soul. We hear a lot mm-hmm. about anxiety. How do you see as a counselor this intersection of anxiety and beauty? How did, how well, could, it's, yeah. you know, it's a great question. It's interesting because, and I will echo some of what was just shared. Um, we went from man's pursuit of transformation to man's pursuit of information with Dewey and Freud. And we went from transformation seeking God to information seeking self. And the more we are internalized pursuing ourselves, the more difficulty we have seeing beauty. And when I have students, young adults that come to see me, when they are eat up with pursuing information about themselves, uh, they cannot see God's. They, they cannot see God's creation. They cannot see truth. They cannot see beauty because they have gone down a therapeutic, you know, 
spider hole. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we've got to help change that scenario by getting back to being people of transformation. So what are some of the just practical things you advise parents or even students on when they're coming in with anxiety? I mean, to kind of break out of that, where, where does... Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about the three-legged stool, one of them being parents. You, mm-hmm. you know, what I see daily are parents that are coming in with children that are uh, you know, overwhelmed with anxiety, overwhelmed with depression, overwhelmed with, um, you know, whether it's identity issues, not just gender, but just really questioning who I am, and they do not have the raw material to answer those questions. Mm. And as I encourage parents to begin parenting differently, to really, you know, look at what does it mean to raise young men and women of character, speaking truth to them, requiring certain things of them in their life, the, the, the fear that parents show on their face is amazing to me. And what the comment I hear regularly, you know, I was in the office on Monday and I heard it from two different sets of parents. I mean, this, this one mom leaned up and she said, we can't do what you're telling us to do, even though we know it's right. Mm. And I said, why can you not do it? She said, because we will be alone. Mm. We will be, you know, we will be the weirdos. You know, how on earth can we do this by ourselves when every family around us we know is on the other track? And to me, it just, which I think is a wonderful opportunity for this community. I have parents every day in my office screaming out, for community of like-minded people so that they're not the island. You know, it's funny, I had a conversation right before we started today about the the classical movement. I mean, how many of you 10 years ago felt like your school was an island? A lot of us did. Now, with many efforts of of many groups and many resources, isn't it unbelievable to have that connection now with other schools or cohort programs? That's where parents are. Parents are where we were 10 or 15 years ago. They're islands, and they're fearful in that. So it sounds like there's really a, your emphasis on how do we, how do we walk next to these parents. And, I, you know, it's, right. I, we've said in podcasts, too, I mean, one of, the, one of the more challenging business models, if you just went to market with, here's a business idea, I know, let's take a 13-year journey with a, a group of customers. However, we're never actually going to work with the, the customer, the parent. We're going to work with their right. hormonal child. And we're never really going to see the customers except at the <laughs> open house and the back-to-school night. So, right. I mean, we just have the, It's like a flawed system in terms of the very people that we need to have mind share and be head in the, have a head in the game. We, we throw a newsletter out occasionally. And it's not, the again, how do we break through and actually have a living community yeah, on our and campus. I, and I right. think that's the key. How do we reclaim community? And I think it's even more difficult than that. I mean, we're playing with their faith, their money, and their children. It's the and only we, trifecta. It's, of, it's the perfect yes. trifecta from yeah. like the third stage of hell. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, we, and yet we don't have meaningful engagement with the majority of the parents. Right. And, and, and so we think about how do we establish community? Well, community is based on relationship, we just heard as well. Mm-hmm. And relationship is based on or grows from shared common experience. And so how can we share and begin offering and sharing common experience with these parents? Without, you know, it's, it's the adage of, hey, we're going to have a barbecue once a month where we actually don't ask parents for money. Sorry, Brad, wherever he is. <laughs> um, you know, but, but I agree. Don't be transactional. You know, how, we just want to be relational. You know, the pursuit, the pursuit of meaning that we had, you know, prior to uh, Dewey and Freud, it was relational. Yeah. We were looking for a relationship, yeah. and that's how we pursued it. Uh, the pursuit of information is completely individual. Right. And so we've got to get back to that relational. 
And I just think about my children. I have two children that were classically educated as well. When they recall their favorite teachers, when I interview students in my office that I deal with, I deal with hundreds every year, and I'm always asking, hey, in school, who's your favorite teacher? I never hear about the teacher that had mastery of the material. I hear about the teacher that was relational. I hear about the teacher that always opened the door. I hear about the teacher that always asked about, hey, how'd the basketball game go? You know, and they also were masters of the material. <laughs> but it's, it's that relationship component. And we miss that, I believe, with the parents. Yeah. yeah we were talking earlier. So my youngest, uh, Bennett, just graduated two weeks ago from the Ambrose School in Boise. And it's the largest graduating class ever at Ambrose. You've been out there. This are 52 students, which is a lot for a classical yeah. Christian school. And we've had this tradition at the school of having class parties. So two or three families would come together. The, net, net, there were 16 parties within about a two-week window. And interesting, is, that the, is that the classical version of a kegger? It, it was, it was, yeah. Yes, I'm with, just with lots of lemonade. Yes, lots of lemonade. So, okay. but but the observation on the part of so first of all, it, what a, an odd world we get to wonderfully live in, where we have yeah. senior parties with all the parents that come. Right, that was amazing, and right. the faculty show up. But the observation was, why are we doing this? Now that they've graduated, like what if we had, first of all, we were partied out after 16 parties, but what if we could divide this up over maybe the beginning of the senior year? We have three parties this month and however you structure it. Or the junior year. Because what, and the sophomore year. Right, right. Right. Because the comment was, we're actually for the first time doing, we're having fun together. We're doing life together. We're we're getting to know each other better and parents are exchanging notes and connections. And so I agree. I just wonder if there's just some actual scheduling structural changes that we might want to think about if we're really going to do community. And and I think that's what we have to do. You know, I, my kids growing up, we would always comment on, you know, what is the one event all through scripture that celebrates relationship more than any other? Mm. And it's breaking bread together, right? It's, it's sharing a meal together, just being yourself, sitting down, sharing a, a common experience together. And I think we've got to rethink that question. How can we begin to share common, AKA sacred experiences with our families? That's how we build relationship, which then builds community. Yeah. And it's not a cookbook. It's going to be different for every school. Right. But have more parties together. Have more parties together. Okay. All right. <laughs> I write agree. that down. That's what I got at the conference. Right. One of my, I have more parties. my two takeaways. Do not write. Have more keggers. Yes, it's right. Have more party. Keith McCurdy said yes. that. Right. Yes. So shifting gears a bit, one of the, again, the last two years have been really rough. I know you, you not only give wisdom to students, you have a lot of us as administrators and, and teachers that are... Uh, calling 1-800-HELP-ME-KEITH and just uh, getting good advice. Um, part of, I think, the challenge is this hyperpolarization that's going on in our culture right now. Kind of, it gets part of cancel culture. I mean, long for, we're longing for the days where the biggest problem was the math curriculum selection or which direction the carpool went. Like, those, like do we used to talk about that? Now we talk about these things that, you know, you, it's fire arrow. You don't, are you going with this group's opinion or that group opinion? How, what wisdom do you have? Because we are, we're in this kind of stuck position of somebody's always going to be upset with whatever decision we make. Yeah, I, I think the challenge is, and it's actually, I think, more simple than not, getting away from figuring out what we are to affirm in society or subjective experience of the individual and getting back to what we need to confirm about the truth of our students' identities. Mm-hmm. Identity that is from a transcendent source of God rather than a subjective source of self. And, and I think that we get, we, we feel like we have to fight these battles that we do not have to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we, we serve our students and our families much better if we decide our classrooms do not need to be 
dealing with that. We need to deal with the individuals in our classroom. Give them the ability to, to seek, discern wisdom so that as they go out to deal with these, we can help in that instruction rather than trying to have those debates and figure those out because we get lost. It's, it's a rabbit hole or it's a spider hole again. Yeah. And I think that's the, and, and again, I think it gets back to just his, the three-legged stool. Like historically, we've been the academics, the educators, the church is here and the home is there. And again, it's, it, we're in, increasingly not only friction between the three legs, but how do we, again, partner well with these organizations and these, again, we've talked a lot about parents, right. but it just, again, there's only so many hours in the day. I mean, is there is a sense that maybe we're trying to do too much? Yeah, I, I yeah. think, you know, I refer to my, my kids a lot in their experience as they went through a classical education. And my son at one point commented on, it taught me how to be a person and how to deal with other people. That's what we need to, mm-hmm. to be in the business of. You know, we, part of this education is teaching them how to be a young man or young woman of character and then demonstrate that in how they interact with those around them, whether they agree with them or not. Mm-hmm. And I think we all have stories of graduates who have gone off to college who will come back and talk about all the craziness that's been around them, and yet how they saw many of their peers not being able to navigate it, and to mm-hmm. them it wasn't as big of a navigation. Yeah. Because we've taught them how to love those around them, regardless of their belief, regardless of what, what, you know, what's on their flagpole that day. Yeah. So you get you get a lot of session breakout sessions um, in Hoover. You can find, which you call yeah. it Wova, I think. A Wova. Yeah. When I look at it, because I can't is, understand which is it. Latin for <laughs> digital uh, conference, I think. Yeah. Um, talk, one of your breakouts is an identity formation, and yeah, talk a little bit about what that. we're going to do tomorrow. Is uh, I think the title is cultivating sturdy kids in the classroom, and we're really going to talk about how do we as teachers speak into identity formation of the students. And it's key because if you've heard me speak much, you know, there are three core identity formation questions. You know, am I valuable regardless of anything I ever do or ever will do? As I stand here today, am I valuable? Uh, am I capable? You know, did, does God actually build a capable creature uh, to be in this world? And then do I fit or belong to something larger than myself? Mm-hmm. And we often think that those are questions only for the church or the family. The reality is we speak into identity formation. And too many times we've abdicated that role and we've talked around it, or we've talked about where it will lead to, but we don't talk directly to it in the students. Mm. Uh, and so tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about how to do that, you know, how, how to quiz yourself, you know, am I really speaking to, to those core questions of identity formation? The students that I, or the young adults that I deal with today um, who, who are eat up with anxiety and depression cannot answer those questions. And a huge part of the work I do in counseling is being able to help them seek the answers to those questions without looking inside themselves. A, a great example is a young lady who came to see me recently. I shared this story yesterday. And um, she's she, a college student, and she's desperately, desperately depressed and suicidal. And, and she said, I, I know my Myers-Briggs type. I have taken the disc. I have been trained in, in the Jungian archetypes I have been through all of this in, intense therapy, and I have learned everything possible I can about myself, and, the, and she was a believer, and the more I looked, the more aware I was that I'm broken. Mm. No wonder she's miserable. Mm. We're never going to find truth opposed to Freud inside ourselves. We have to seek it transcendently. And that's a part that we can speak into. What is that transcendent truth about identity of our students? Yeah. And, and you give them raw material 
to answer big life questions when we do that. Absolutely. You're talking about just the, the, the reality of all the information that's coming at us. I mean, I think that's, I mean, and that's part of where anxiety comes from. That's where all this friction comes from. I mean, everything it seems to be more heated and polarized. We're also bombarded with statistics. You know, I was just looking, um, for instance, New York Times survey, 94% of school counselors said their students were showing more signs of anxiety and depression than before the pandemic. Uh, so let me so let me stop you right there. That's yeah. not a true statistic. That's an opinion that they have right that they've captured with a percentage. So just it, saying right. Well, this is the that's point. not an actual statistic. So let me give you one more statistic that's yeah. not a statistic. So I'm again because it's out there. Right. And, and parents are reading this, and I know. I know, and they're I know. okay. So depression rates among U.S. adults tripled when the pandemic first hit, jumping from 8.5 percent to a staggering 27.8 percent. However, new research from Boston University School of Public Health shows that depression has now climbed to 32.8%, affecting one in every three Americans. So I think we always seem to go crawl under a rock. Well, yeah, and I think we've got to be careful because um, we, everything in media, we all know this, is about marketing. It's about money. The vast majority didn't used to be that way. Um, and without thinking about it, what draws our attention more, negative or positive, negative because we are broken. Fear-mongering makes money. And we've got to be very careful about statistics. Just so you all know, I, I look at statistics constantly in my field. The last drop of statistics for anxiety and depression nationally in this nation by the CDC, I checked yesterday morning, so this was true as of yesterday, was 2019. The CDC has not released mass statistics on anxiety, depression, or suicide for a general population since then. The one study that was done since then is the one I referenced last year, done by Mental Health America um, and Beacon Health did a thing where we looked at one of the largest studies ever, 27 million mental health claims. Wow. And everything we have heard is everyone has gotten worse, especially our children during the pandemic. That is absolutely currently not backed up by statistics. It could be true, but the numbers don't tell us that. While we did see statistics, raw numbers, Prior to the pandemic, 2019, one in 10 of us had clinically significant levels of anxiety and depression. Post-2020, four in 10 of us had clinically significant levels of anxiety and depression. We got worse. We did. But very interestingly, what the study also found is we, all, we saw a 10% drop of clinically significant anxiety and depression among children and a 5% drop in anxiety and depression among teenagers. That's not what we hear, but that's what the actual numbers tell us. We hear, we think it's worse. We hear the suicide rate is worse. We hear all this. I will tell you that statistic matched exactly what I saw in my own office. I treated about 500 families during pandemic, during the height of pandemic, pandemic in 2020. And virtually every child or teenager I dealt with, almost all, got better. <laughs> Their symptoms calmed because they reclaimed accidentally order in life. We reclaimed family. I had students saying, you know how weird it is that my dad is home for dinner? <laughs> he's still wearing pajamas, but he's home for dinner. You know? And or, an Oxford shirt. And an Oxford shirt. Yes, right, yeah. or, or we, you know, I, I've actually started riding my bike again. Or we built a, I'm personally responsible for like 50 fire pits being built in the Roanoke Valley because that was my recommendation <laughs> to teenage boys who were dying. I'm like, build a fire pit. Your parents will let you have friends over in the backyard. It's COVID safe. <laughs> and the idea was 
we reinvented the, the, the biblical structure, in a sense, of family. The problem is we did it accidentally. And so as everything has opened back up, families have gone back to much of the chaos they were in prior, and, and, and we're seeing that now. But the children and teenagers, for the most part, that I saw matched exactly the statistics we saw. One of the statistics we see now that we need to be careful about is that we hear that suicide rates are off the chart for teens and children. We don't know that. We don't have that number from the CDC. You can go on their website and look. What we have is we do know that we've seen more children and teenagers at emergency rooms because my profession went virtual. If I have someone in front of me who is suicidal, I can effectively assess them and make determination. If I'm online and I have someone who is suicidal, I send them to the emergency room during pandemic. It's the only place they can sit in front of a human. So we had a spike in the emergency rooms. It absolutely does not mean we had a spike in suicidality. They were just showing up other places. Now, we may find out we did have a spike, but that number's not there yet. And so the warning I tell everybody is, pause. <laughs> pause a little bit. If you see something and you think, oh my gosh, dig a little. Look for words like we think. Well, that's not a stat then. That's someone's opinion. You know, look for real information. Because what happens is when we, get, when we run on fear, we start making policy changes on fear. Mm. We start changing mass communications with our parents on fear. We can start, we talked yesterday about the Werther effect. Um, uh, when Goethe uh, wrote the book, or it was released in Europe, The Sorrow of Werther, the hero was, was, was de- depressed and killed himself. They had a rash of suicides of young teenage males across Europe because they read the book. If we start telling our parents, oh my gosh, 94% of our children are whatever, or, and we send that out to inform our parents, we're going to have parents more depressed. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we need to be calm and pause with that information. And, and, and figure out what's behind it. Yeah. And, and really what we should be communicating is hope. I mean, it's, it's much like um, what's been in the news recently is Uvalde. Uh, and I hate to say this, but every professional I've seen online or in newspapers got it wrong. You know, we should not be telling our kids everything about Uvalde. The very first question when a parent says, should I tell my child about Uvalde? The very first question is, does your child know about it? If they don't, don't have a discussion with them about it. They have no place to put it in their head. And statistically, it will never affect their life directly. And they look at me like I'm nuts. And I say, the number one killer of children last year was water. How many of us have a very intense conversation about the dangers of the swimming pool before we take our children to the swimming pool? Because that's more likely to kill them than a shooter. Yes, it's a traumatic, horrible situation. But too many times we introduce unnecessary information and dump our anxiety and fear on top of our children. And so we've got to be aware of that as a school we can do that. You know, it's, it's a school that calls me and says, we've had a rash of students that have self-harmed. We want to bring a speaker in and talk to the student body about self-harm. I say, great, you're going to have twice as many self-harmers the two weeks after that. But we need to talk about the glory of, of your body and how God says to cherish it, not self-harm. So. That's a great word. Yeah, I think about as you're saying that. I mean, Neil Postman years ago writing, "Amusing ourselves to death." I mean, where the exactly. small town is now aware of a hotel fire up in New York, and all of a sudden we're worried about it. And I think right. that's our culture times a thousand. Today, it is. So. That's right. So, well, Keith, we're out of time, but thank you as always. Thank you. A lot Very of Keith much. McCurdy opportunities here at the conference. So, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Hey, Basecamp Live listeners, this is Hannah, Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say 
that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader, to love God. And now as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to info at basecamplive.com. Let us know where you're from, where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.